Aristotle said, happiness is a quality of the soul, not a function of one's material circumstances. Welcome to the Soul Podcast. I'm Stacy Wheeler. This quote from Aristotle talks of how happiness is found in the soul, not in the world. You'll see the same thought or variations of it repeated dozens of times over the ages as we move from episode to episode to the timeline of history. Great thinkers before and after Aristotle who meditated on the soul found happiness and joy as a result of becoming closer to the soul. About 1500 years later, the Persian mystic and philosopher Rumi put it this way, when you do things from your soul, you feel a river moving in you, a joy. And in the 1600s, a priest named Angelus Silis attributed the soul sensation to the touch of God, and he wrote, God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. There's something powerful about moving away from our outward world and into our inner world, and making the soul connection. It's an ancient secret that's not a secret at all. We seem to understand it intuitively. Don't believe me? How about this great quote? When you lose yourself, you find the key to paradise. That's lyrics from a song called Needy by the Zac Brown Band from 2010. So a bit more recent. There's a beautiful thing that happens when we let go, when we stop worrying about the little details of life and simply drop into this moment. When we lose ourselves, as the lyrics say, we find relaxation, calmness, and joy. Today we're going to accelerate our journey through the history of the soul and hit a lot of stops along the way. We'll travel from Egypt to the Far East and we'll look at how people in ancient times related to and wrote about the soul. As we move through these places and these cultures, you might start to see a trend that suggests we're all connected. People all around the globe seem to understand it. So let's take a journey. After Gobekli Tepe, there's a big gap in writings about the soul. Because the builders of Gobekli Tepe wrote in stone, and the site remained buried for thousands of years, protected from the elements, we still have their thoughts. The carving stone was difficult and time-consuming. It didn't make much sense for people to save ideas in this way. Only when doing something greatly ceremonial, like building a temple, for instance, would they spend such effort. Later, after they discovered clay, they'd write on clay tablets, which doesn't keep as long as stone, but it did keep much longer than everything else they'd write on back then. The gap in the record was influenced by a few other things as well. The written language was still being developed, so recording detailed thoughts wouldn't be an option for a few thousand years. Once writing was developed, only a small number could write, and most of the objects the ancients wrote on didn't last long. I mean, the paper we use today lasts maybe three, four hundred years if it's well cared for. The writings of these ancient people were mostly, well, all made of organic materials, things like papyrus leaves and that sort of thing. So anything written about the soul in that way or long gone. So thousands of years passed before we find another soul reference. Of course, ceremonial burials continued on through this time, so there are references in that manner, but nothing written. We're fortunate that in this time, pottery was developed and clay was being used to write on. It had been nearly 5,000 years after the carvings at Gobekli Tepe, and with the written language, ideas could now be more than just pictures. Far south and east of Gobekli Tepe, and what we now know as Iraq, was ancient Mesopotamia, also called Samaria. So in 1851, an English guy named Sir Austin Henry Layard discovered the ancient city of Nippur in Mesopotamia. And it's there that he found a library of more than 30,000 clay tablets. This was great because in this way of writing, the ancient people would press words into wet clay. And when those words dried, it could last much longer than other organic materials. These tablets dated back to 7th century BCE. 
So to give you a little bit of context, that's around 5,000 years before the birth of Jesus. The tablets included all sorts of things, record keeping and stories. But on one of the tablets he found, when they figured out what it said, they realized it contained a creation myth that was, was later named the Sumerian creation myth. And it talks about the way the soul is connected to the body. So let's, let's stop here for a moment and look at the way people 9,000 years ago thought about the soul. The Sumerians had a word for the soul, she, that's spelled Z-I. The word translates loosely to breath of life. Moving forward in the timeline, we'll see that each culture and language had its own word for the soul. And we'll see that breath will be used repeatedly in many cultures to refer to the soul. As time goes on and writing evolved, we'll also see more detailed effort to understand the nature of the soul, where it comes from and where it goes to when we die. Now in Mesopotamia, we start to see a pattern that repeats again and again. And that's that religion has a habit of attaching itself to the soul. I guess this probably shouldn't surprise us. There's something mystical about moments when we're quiet and we let our minds relax. Just being present allows us to connect to the soul. The connection seems easier for most through prayer, meditation, or silent reflection in nature. The feeling is so mystical we often feel the beauty of it is inexplainable. It's not like anything else we experienced. So gods came and went. People attached the soul to the notion of a higher power. To see how religious groups in this same region were thinking about the soul, let's jump forward about 2,000 years. I'm going to do a brief stop in ancient Egypt. In the Egyptian record, we find many references to the soul. About 3,000 years before the birth of Jesus, the Egyptians wrote a great deal about the soul, but had a slightly different take on the soul-body connection. They believed the soul was segmented into five separate parts. Each part of the soul was found within and around the body, and each had its own name. Ka, spelled K-A, became the most associated with the soul. The Ka was a person's second self, essentially his double. And at death, it was said that the Ka separated from the body. Most of us have seen ancient Egyptian language written as hieroglyphs, uh, like the pictographs used thousands of years before in Gobekli Tepe. These were symbols which represented words as concepts. Ka was represented by a set of shoulders with arms reaching toward the heavens. So we're starting to see a trend here again in this point in history. We begin to see a pattern to start to form about the soul and its connection to the sky. Remember in Gobekli Tepe, we had a head being carried to the sky. In this case, we have arms showing reference to the sky. But around the same time, thousands of miles away in South Asia, early Hindus and Buddhists were also writing about the spirit inside. So. Let's look into ancient Sanskrit. Around this time in what's now India, the people had perfected the written language known as Sanskrit, and the word Purusha repeatedly turned up in these ancient writings. That's kind of a complex concept whose meaning came into use during the Vedic and Upanishadic times, and was used by the Rishis to describe what we call the soul. You know, the Rishis were sort of a combination of philosophers, scientists, and holy men, very, very much looked up to, very learned. Much of their writings showed a fascination with the soul. To see more clearly how they viewed the soul, let's take a look at the original meaning of Purusha. Using the ancient texts, we find that the literal meaning of the word was the cosmic man, or something very close to that. It refers to a myth in their culture about a man sacrificed by the gods to create everyone else. Here we start to see a philosophical trend about the soul, the belief that we're all connected by a single creator and are part of the same single entity. As word meanings often do, the meaning of Purusha evolved. Over time, it's held different meanings. At different times, it's meant self, universal principle, and consciousness. Today, the words evolved to the point where now Purusha simply means man 
or essentially to designate between male and female. The word meaning may have changed as people struggle to find better ways to describe the soul. We all seem to do this. There aren't enough words to nail it down. It seems all cultures have different words they try to label this deep feeling inside with. You know, to get a sense of how we've grasped to explain it, I've made a short list of words we've used in the modern age in English to try to nail down this thing we call the soul. So here are a couple examples. Spirit, consciousness, essence, core, being, core self, sacred self, inner being, inner self, vital force, divine spark, spiritual being, God self, noble self, over self, and of course the soul. And this is just some of the words, more common ones. There are a lot of other stretches like transpersonal witness. There's so many different words we've tried to throw at this to try to pin it down and make sense of it. But you know, no words can really help anyone understand the concept of the soul. It has to be something felt. Nothing captures the unnameable soul. So cultures struggle to find a fitting word for it. The soul, it turns out, is infinitely indescribable as a word doesn't adequately represent the vastness and power of it. Some groups have even decided it's unnameable. The Taoists are a good example of this. We'll talk more about them in the next episode as we travel further down the timeline. But looking back to India, soon these same people would be referring to the soul as Atman, meaning the self or the inner spirit. Though they too would use many other words to try to sort of pin down this, this deepest essence we all feel. Now about the same time the Sanskrit language was being developed, other people in south and to the east in India were speaking their own language the Tamil language. It would take at least a few thousand years before this spoken language evolved into a written language, though. Despite that, their philosophies seemed to be highly developed like their neighbors. By the time Tamil became a written language in or around other parts of India, the people writing it already had a firm understanding of the human relationship to the soul. In the earliest Tamil records, we see a word that was pronounced Ainme or Aitme when it was used as a noun, and I'm probably butchering that, so excuse me. I'll put all these words I'm sharing in the show notes to make it easy to check them out and see the spelling on them if you want to do further research on it. Depending on the way the word's used, its meaning could vary to mean soul, self, or spirit. And this, this was an interesting word because it had a distinction within the language that made it understood that it was the opposite of matter. Simply stated, that means that it refers to something of the spirit. The word was specific to refer to something of the spirit. As a contrast, there was another word, uh, uyir, which was opposite of Ain May and had a distinction that it was understood it referred to life or the opposite of spirit. The reason this matters and it's interesting is you see we're starting to get really specific now about the way they talked about the soul. Again, we see another culture bending the language in an attempt to explain the seemingly unexplainable. Centuries before the advent of Christianity, we find people were already being philosophical about the nature of the human relationship to the soul. Now backing up a minute, earlier I talked a little about how we're all connected. I want to mention something I recently read. So back in 2009, there's this 12-year-old girl doing a summer project. And so she was interested in looking at uh, the genealogy of a group. And so she picked the U.S. presidents. She dug down following a crazy amount of work and, and research following the ancestors of presidents. And she found all but one of the presidents up until 2009 all had a common ancestor. And that common ancestor was also someone famous, King John of England. You know, the bad guy from the Robin Hood story. So if you're like me right now, you're wondering one of two things. Who was the president who was not on the list? That's Martin Van Buren. Uh, he was the odd man out. He came from German bloodline, so not related to the English king. The other thing you, you might be wondering is, what? Why are all these guys related? 
The other thing you might be thinking is, what kind of weird conspiracy is this that all these guys who are related held the same office? We'll get to that in a second. First of all, let me say that people fact check this, and it turns out what the girl found is true. Before we dive into the profoundness of this, let's look at the reason the girl chose this group. They're all famous. They all held the same office. They seem like a good target, right? So it's interesting, interesting that they're really all related. But is it more than a coincidence? I mean, this all seems pretty wild, right? Google it and you'll find a bunch of people who think it's an age-old conspiracy to keep a select bloodline in power. But I'll show you a few facts and you'll see it's not all like that. You see, it turns out that if you take 50 or so random strangers off the street and go back in their bloodlines, you'll find that most of us are connected by a common ancestor no more than 25 generations back. This has been proven using math, genealogy, and DNA more recently. Another study showed that everyone alive today is related no further out than 50th cousins. So why does this matter? Well, the world is a great big place, and we're all connected. Most of us at the far removed root level, but we're all connected. Do you see that? Do you feel that? Like a forest, you may see different trees that look similar and other plants that are a little bit different, but they're all growing in the same soil. They all rely on the same ecosystem for their continued existence. Through that shared history and shared space, they're all connected, just like us. And you know what? The ancients saw the beauty of seeing ourselves in others. The Hindus have a group of books that are called the Upanishads. They're a group of texts and philosophies. And there's this great quote. He who sees all beings in his self and his self in all beings, he never suffers. Because when he sees all creatures within his true self, then jealousy, grief, and hatred vanish. So let's do something beautiful today. While you're going about your day, pick out a stranger or a coworker or an acquaintance. Maybe even pick someone who triggers you a little or you feel some judgment towards, but not someone in your family. And really look at them. Take that person in. And then understand they're your distant relative. Yeah, I know. We all have relatives we'd rather avoid. Being related doesn't mean we want to be on the same team or we enjoy that person's company. But if we could live our lives understanding that we're all connected, every one of us, maybe we'd live our lives a little differently. Maybe we'd start to approach the world around us differently and the people that we encounter. It's easy to fall into the trap of believing that we're all just a ship at sea all by ourselves. We're not. We're a sea of trees connected at the roots. Everyone I see is as beautiful and flawed as me. The homeless man on the corner, the woman who cut me off in traffic and showed me her finger, the telemarketer who's convinced I need an auto warranty, and that impatient kid in line at the grocery store. Today, look at all the people around you and understand they're part of you and you're part of them. And like you, at the core, they're a beautiful and perfect soul. Thank you for listening to the Soul Podcast today, my dear distant cousin. In the next episode, we're going to take a long trip all around the world. We're going to hit Africa, Asia, and then we're going to fly over to the Americas, north and south, and see how people there were looking at the soul just before the modern age of the new religions came on. Let's come on back, will you? Thank you for listening to The Soul Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, learned something new, or were just entertained, please tell your friends about the show and hit that follow button. This is the best way for other people to find the show. 
Check the show notes for links to supporting information as well as any books or other reading material related to this episode.